Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have my friend, Mr. U of A Wildcat himself, Brian Rimza. Rimza, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? It's kind of a somber run. Good because you know what's going to happen. I get a chance to get you on the podcast. You know, I've, I've verbally abused you privately, but, uh, you know, our big game that we have at the end of November every year, the issue Sun Devils actually came out on top, and it was kind of comical you're, you're, texting you. You're kind of breaking up. Yeah. I can't hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I can't hear you. <laughs> I was texting you throughout the game, and I kept texting, are you nervous? And then you'd come back with some reply, and then I'm like, man, it sounds like you're nervous. And then as the game kept going on and on, I could tell that uh, I was definitely getting under your skin. What do you have yeah. to say for yourself? There's not much I can say. ASU beat us there. <laughs> your, uh, your Sun Devils actually just beat uh, the number two uh, ranked Kansas Jayhawks in basketball about five minutes ago. Nice. So, uh, Bobby Hurley and the boys were gunning for the Wildcats next, huh? Yeah, it looks like it. The Wildcats should be worried. Yeah, I don't know about that. But um, anyway, had to give you a hard time. It's awesome to have you on the podcast. You've been on a whirlwind tour. I mean, uh, this fall's been great for you with your doll sheep hunt uh, that we talked about on the podcast and, and had unbelievable success up there. But then we're fortunate to go with your wife on a great elk hunt in northern Arizona in Unit 23. And uh, she also, her and your dad, drew strip deer tags in, in 13D and uh, both got, you know, dang near 40-inch bucks uh, and, and big, big giant bucks had success up there with uh, MDA Outfitters. Uh, and then you went with Jaron and, and um, he, he got a, what is he, what is he, 11 or 12? He's 12. Well, and got a bull elk up there in uh, northern Arizona. And, and um, so you've just been on a, you've been on a great fall season, um, why don't you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, it's been uh, quite the whirlwind, to say the least. I mean, I put my wife in for the best hunts this fall just because I knew I was going to be hunting Northwest Territories for sheep and caribou. And once you know it, she didn't draw one tag. She drew two tags and, uh, you know, made for a very, very busy fall. And my son drew a late-season elk tag, and it's just been really good. The, uh, the elk hunt was definitely a grind for my wife and and for i we try we busted hard to try and kill a big bull and it just you know didn't really work out i spent 12 days up there looking at all sorts of broken bulls trying to find the one and we kind of found one that we really liked and he gave us a slip like they often do and you know it was a it was a good experience for my wife kind of the first real i would say trophy hunting experience she's ever had as far as she probably passed up 20, 25 bulls, some great bulls. But, I mean, with that tag, you're trying to shoot something that's 350-plus. And uh, you'd like to shoot something bigger. But when they're broke up and, I mean, the rutting activity was incredible. And it was fun to watch. But they were just shredded. I mean, you see a great bull, and he's missing half an antler, half a rack. Half, and it was just tough. Let's talk about that a little bit Um I've actually caught a little bit of flack for kind of, you know, quote-unquote, kind of poo-pooing that 23 North hunt, not from a perspective of great rutting and great elk experience, but it's just, 
in my experience that, you know, year after year after year, it seems like the quality has declined from, say, where it was, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Um, and I think it's a hunt that it's, it's hard, you're hard pressed to find a bull over 350. You bring up a good point of them being broke and, you know, finding a bull intact. But I mean, even during the archery season before they break up, I mean, it's, it's, it's just become one of those units that's phenomenal for bugling and, you know, great rutting, you know, great elk hunting experience. But, you know, it, it's kind of been known for giant bulls and they'll always be a giant with the White Mountain Apache being right there and, you know, having the reservation border there. But just what was your overall sense? You know, I tell people it's a 320 to 350 type of hunt and maybe an occasional over that, you know, in, you know, in a couple week period, maybe a couple bulls over that 350 mark. But, you know, you spent 12 days up there. What was your sense of the, you know, general size and kind of what you saw? I mean, I saw some bulls that would definitely push that 360, 370 mark, but they were, I mean, they were shredded. Bulls missing third, fourth, and fifth. Bulls missing entire beams. Um, I think the reason the hunt is so good as far as bugling is concerned and just overall rut activities because you only have 15 hunters. So, I mean, you don't have people driving every road all night long and every hunter, yeah, they may have four or five helpers, but it's not like a unit like nine where you have 100 people with four or five helpers. So there's a lot more people just out in the woods. Um, but, I mean, I struggled. I mean, I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I definitely struggled and I worked hard to try and find good bulls and, the best bull intact that I found was probably 365, and we would have gladly killed him, and we almost did. Um, I don't know of any big bulls coming out of 23 North during the early rifle hunt. I know there were some 350-type bulls in the archery hunt, and it doesn't mean that there are bulls I don't know about. But, I mean, there's been some pretty good guys with tags in 23 North and 23 South over the last couple years, and... Nobody's really slammed a giant. Um, you know, the ground and pound crew and some other crews up there always seem to kill some really good bulls, but those are, that's their backyard. I mean, those guys are there all the time. So it's, it's a fun hunt. You got to get out and get after it, but it's just like anything. I mean, I think we lose touch when we draw those early rifle tags, and I really tried not to do that um, with the fact of since when is a 350 bull not a big bull? I mean, uh, especially for someone who's never killed an elk. I mean, those are big animals, big elk, and that's a big bull. And we all want to kill the big giant, but it just doesn't always come together. Yeah, did you feel like, you know, you covered the unit from head to toe? You know, is there anything that you would have done differently if you could just have it over again? Is there any one thing or two that, you know, you would might consider doing different or or? You know, did you do every, would you do everything exactly the same, or was there any moment where you said, man, we should have done this, or we should have done that? Um, I might have got a little more aggressive on a few instances. Um, I was hunting with my wife, you know, and I don't really want to rush in and bust a bull out and have to get a shot off at him as he's going through the trees, and maybe I could have got a little more aggressive with that, but I felt like I covered the unit pretty well. Um, I would have liked to maybe have a few more cameras out a little earlier than what I did just because I was limited in my time frame based on the fact that I was on the Northwest Territory sheep hunt. I mean, I basically got back from that hunt on the 7th of September and, you know, had to work for a few weeks and then uh, go up there on that hunt. But I feel like we gave it 
gave it our all, and I saw a lot of great bulls. Um, they were just broke. And But, I mean, I don't think I ever saw a bull that I would say would have pushed that 380 mark. doesn't mean that they're not there. I just never saw them. Yeah. From what you saw from the times, you know, you were scouting during the archery season, um, given the 14 days, I mean, Nicole's a great archery shot. Do you feel like you could have probably harvested uh, as big a bull or bigger on the archery hunt? Not, not only from a standpoint of, you know, there, there's less bulls broken, but just from what you saw scouting during the archery hunt, you know, do you feel like there was more rutting or, or, or do you feel like it, you know, it's just a pretty fair question, I think, to say if you had the 14-day arch, if she had the 14-day archery tag, do you feel like the outcome would have been any different, or would it be would would it be the same? I think the one thing that I would do different do on an archery hunt that was 14 days in that unit is I would be there seven days before the hunt starts, and I would hunt as hard as I could the first week of the hunt and try and get it done because those elk are not broke yet. They're still getting, you know, wrangling up the cows. And I just think that if you can find a bull in that first week, you can get on him and, you know, get things figured out before the hunt starts and then really have at it for seven full days before they start destroying each other. Um, the unit sets up pretty well, as you know, to glass a lot of it. Some of it's not that accessible to glassing, but a lot of it is. And once you kind of figure out where those elk are working into and working out of, uh, it was dry this year, so I think you could have done pretty well on water and things of that nature. But if I was going to have that tag on an archery hunt, and I would take it in a heartbeat, I would be there seven days before the hunt started. And if I only had a two-week window, then I would go a week before the hunt started, and I'd hunt the first week. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I mean, getting those bulls when they're fresh and not – you know, haven't been pressured much that there's a lot to be said for that. Um, we'll probably get into this question a little bit on the, when you start talking about the strip deer hunt, but, um, and, and maybe you can address it then as well, but I kind of want you in the back of your mind to be thinking about uh, guys that are listening that are, that are wanting to get their wives or their better halves or their, you know, significant others, girlfriends, whatever, maybe even their moms, their sisters into hunting, um, you know, what did you learn over, you know, you've hunted with your wife quite a bit, but, but, you know, these two hunts were pretty high pressure, pretty high profile type hunts. Um, did you learn anything specifically going into, or, you know, after it was over that you'd said, man, um, you know, I really learned this, or I really learned that, or I wish I would have done a little more of this or a little more of that in trying to make her experience better. Um, I mean, my wife would have liked to have been up there scouting with me a little bit more, and that was just a product of me being gone on that other hunt prior. And so I would have brought it up there more. She did make it up there scouting with me two weekends and got to see a lot of the country. The thing that I always think is important is try and make them comfortable, make sure they have the equipment they need to be comfortable, whether it be warm clothes, a good tripod, a chair to glass off of, um, you know, decent food, whatever it is. I mean, I just try to make the hunt as comfortable as possible for them because you want to make it enjoyable. And then I, right from the beginning, I, I've realized that these are not my tags. Um, things that I might be willing to pass are not something that she might be willing to pass. And she did really good passing up some bulls 
and she had a lot of emotions going into the hunt because she really wanted to kill an elk because she'd never killed a bull elk before. Um, so it was tough to pass some of the bulls that she did pass and then to harvest a bull that was smaller than the bulls that she'd passed, but she realized that she harvested an older bull. Um, it was a tough deal. She got the benefit of going to the Arizona Strip and experiencing why you pass up the smaller animals so that you have a chance to shoot a true giant, um, which was kind of a blessing because if she hadn't had that strip hunt, she would have kind of left with a sour taste in her mouth and the aspect of, like, man, she passed up a lot of good bulls and she hunted hard and there wasn't a whole lot. I mean, we didn't miss any opportunities. She didn't miss any bulls or or anything of that nature. It was just, it didn't, it didn't go our way. Um, and sometimes that happens. Yeah, for sure. I mean, she shot a really cool bull. It's, you know, kind of flamed out in the back, all palmated and a, and a really neat, like we say, old bull. Um, and, you know, I feel like if you got to hunt seven full days, uh, or, you know, six, seven full days and get to experience all that rutting and bugling, um, you know, there's something to be said for that. But, but I do think, um, you know, having talked to you on the phone kind of on, you know, through some of both of the hunts and what have you kind of wasn't on the hunts, uh, but kind of felt like I was there just because you stayed in touch with me. You know, I feel like, uh, being able to have that strip hunt and then realize, like you just said, you know, trophy hunting, it's not easy. And sometimes you come home, maybe she wouldn't even have gotten a bull. You know, there was, a, you know, there was a chance maybe she wouldn't even got a bull or even on this buck hunt, like, you know, you, you quickly realize when you get a huge trophy that you've been very selective in trying to get that it all comes together. And I mean, she probably would have had a really good time on both hunts, even if she didn't harvest, but it, it's always nice to actually get one. Um, but to, to go through a tough hunt, you know, as far as mentally and passing bulls and then get to see the strip hunt come full circle and, you know, get an absolute giant deer. I, I think the deer's 40 inches, um, just an incredible non-typical deer. Going into that hunt, Brian, was there coming off that elk hunt, was there anything that you were like, okay, we need to make sure, in your mind, like, I want to make sure this hunt goes a certain way? Like, were you going after a giant on the strip, or were you more just, let's go have a great hunt and try and kill a 200? Well, I mean, we, the elk hunt, you know, I had some help up there uh, that, you know, they were able to cover a lot of the unit when I wasn't covering certain parts, so, I mean, I had Daniel Franco up there that helped me with Burnt Timber Outfitters, and so, they were able to spread out and cover some of the unit, and so that helped me out a bunch there. And then going into the strip hunt, you know, we hired Breck and Bronson Bundy with Mule Deer Addiction Outfitters, and uh, I've hunted with Breck and Bronson tw twice now. This is my third time up there on this hunt, and, you know, knowing the strip, I told Breck right away um, and Bronson, I said, look, I don't want to hunt a ghost. We're not hunting the 240-inch giant that shows up on a trail camera once every three months in the dark. Uh, I did not want to do that with, with my wife. And, you know, the goal was to try and kill a 200-inch deer. If we saw a 200-inch deer, whether it be, you know, right off the road or we hiked our tail off, we were going to kill it. It's just the way it was going to be. Is it? And I, I think that's a reasonable expectation. I think the only place you'll ever go, one of the only places you'll ever go in the world is the strip where people will tell you, 
you know, I don't want to shoot a 200-inch deer. And that's fine. I mean, every, to each their own. It's just since when is a 200-inch deer not big? And those, all those guides you got up there will tell you stories of guys who just want to shoot a 240. They think because they have the tag they should get a 240. And it just that's not realistic. And you want to go up there with realistic expectations to go have fun. And, you know, I had told Nicole, and we had talked about it, and it was the goal was to shoot a solid 200-inch deer. And if we killed something bigger, great. If we killed something that was a little smaller, great, too. We were just going to go have a good time and have a lot of fun. And um, obviously the end result was great. But, you know, again, going up on those hunts with your wife or your kid, you got to remember it's not your tag. Uh, you got to remember, you got to do everything you can to be make them successful. So you got to get them out to the range. You got to get them to understand the gun. You need to make sure the gun is on. Um, you know, you got to have the right clothes, uh, right food, everything just to, to make it fun and make it. When you're up there on the strip in a dust bowl for ten days, you know, just having a place where you can take a shower is, is an amazing feeling, and having a warm place to go to sleep is amazing. So, I mean, all those things make it uh, make it a better hunt. And, um, you know, the strip was incredible. Breck and Bronson, are, they run an incredible outfit. And, uh, you know, the reason I hired those guys uh, over some of the other great outfitters is just because I know what I'm getting. And I know the atmosphere in camp is always going to be great. And I know we're gonna, they're going to hunt hard and we're going to bust our tail to do everything and anything we can to be successful. And, uh, you know, they have a pretty – pretty strong track record that speaks for itself yeah for sure i've been fortunate to be up there with them in their camps and just seen some unbelievable deer that uh they've dug up and and that their hunters have gotten in they're just great guys and um yeah you know your dad shot a couple big deer with them and it's uh always fun to be up there with those guys for sure um i want to get in today to I'm going to ask you about Jaren's hunt real fast, but I want to get in today and talk about over-the-counter uh, Arizona archery deer hunting, which you have had a lot of success. Um, but before we get to that, you finished up kind of your fall season, if you will, uh, with Jaren uh, drawing a late elk tag. It's his first elk tag. And were you even more, you talk about trying to make, you know, your wife, you're trying to make them comfortable. Uh, when it comes to a kid, do you go above and beyond that even more to try and make it even more fun and put them in a position to succeed and, and make it more about the experience and you know, just trying to you know, share a good time with family? I, I'm just curious how that went down and kind of like what your expectations were going into that hunt. I mean, I try to control every variable on every hunt that I can. So, you know, getting Jaron out to the range and shooting, getting him comfortable behind the gun, making sure I've got warm clothes for that late season hunt, although this year it wasn't, uh, wasn't very cold, and trying to figure out what, you know, what's Jaron's expectations. You know, there are some kids out there that are ready to go five miles to kill an elk or kill a deer, and, you know, that's how I was growing up. And then there are other kids who, like to get out there and enjoy it, but they don't want to go five miles and, and you know, basically beat themselves up for a full day. And, I mean, whatever the Understandable. expectation is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, whatever the expectation is of your 
your kid or your significant other, you got to try and meet those expectations because remember, it's not your hunt. And if you take a kid who enjoys being out there, but it, maybe it's not the the thing that they jump to do it all the time, and you drag him up and down some giant canyons for five miles, and his feet are all blistered up, and he gets back to camp, he's probably not going to really want to go again. Right. So I try to keep it fun. I don't have high expectations on size for Jaron. Um, if he looks at it and he says he wants to shoot it, then you know what? We're going to shoot it. I mean, that's how I, right. <laughs> I, I grew up. I was, my first couple of deer were spikes. You know, my first bull was a little raghorn. I mean, that's just, that's how it was for me. That's how I grew up. And so if he wants to shoot it, we're going to shoot it, you know? And so that's, that's what we did. I had some help up there. A buddy of mine had gone up a day early and actually found the bull that Jaron ended up killing and, we went over there, and, you know, he made a great 380-yard shot and put the bull down by 9 o'clock in the morning, and, you know, we got it out of there, and it was just a good weekend, and it's a good memory for him, and we got to go up to Flagstaff and hang out and do some things up there, too. So, I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm happy he wants to go. I'm happy he enjoys it, and, you know, at some point he may be ready to start passing bulls and passing bucks and holding out for something bigger, but right now, you know, he's 12, so, I mean, it's about going out and having fun. Well, and I think you bring up a good point. I mean, you, you, you want to expose them, but you don't want to burn them out. You, you want them to have fun and enjoy it. And if that means roasting marshmallows and, you know, target practicing and not even going out in an afternoon because it's, the wind's blowing, you've got to understand that you, you've got a lifetime with those kids. And if they don't want to ever do it again, you're never going to get them out there. So it's better to be out there you know, plinking uh, Coke cans and, you know, letting them drive on your lap than it is to be grinding. So, I mean, I'm, I'm happy you did that. I've seen you do that with them on turkey hunts and stuff. And, um, you know, let him go at his own pace. If he wants to sleep in that morning, fine, sleep in and, and come out with us in the afternoon. And I think it's important to, you know, every person, whether they're a kid or an adult or whatever, has their own level of, you know, how much they love it and how much they want to do it. And, like you keep saying, it's not your tag. And as long as they're enjoying it, the chance of them wanting to do it more is, is you know, do it over and over is better. Um, I know it's hard for you, you know, type A, just charge, charge, charge. I'm sure it's hard to rein yourself back, but you've really done a good job. I've watched kind of how you've done it, and, and kudos to you for, uh, you know, kind of putting your own, you know, charging mentality on the back burner and just trying to, make it fun and, and I think that's super important yeah I mean that's what I try to do I mean I always remember having fun with my dad I never remember being forced to do anything and so I try to do it with him and you know if hopefully uh there'll come that time where he says you know I don't want to shoot that one it's not big enough let's let's hike over the next mountain and see if we can find one bigger and you know we'll work toward that at some point yeah let's talk a little bit about um over-the-counter archery deer now for those listening, uh, Arizona's archery deer season basically has an August season. It runs roughly from August 25th to September 14th, and then, then archery deer season is closed, and then it opens back up in a bunch of units uh, December 15th through the 31st. And then when January, when the new year rolls around, it's in essence a new year, obviously. It's a new tag, so you could technically shoot at archery deer 
uh, an archery buck on last day of December and on January 1st you could shoot a buck and you could shoot them back-to-back -back days. Brian, talk a little bit about how it works with you mentally putting in for the draws, hunting in August versus hunting in December, and then right away hunting again in January. Because if you kill a buck in January, you, can't, you can only kill one buck per calendar year. So I know you've had your own mental struggles with, you know, I want this rifle deer tag, you know, should I, should I kill this buck in January so my, you know, so my one deer per year is over with? Talk a little bit about those seasons and how those structures have worked for you over the years. Well, I mean, August is typically my time to hunt for me. Um, typically, the scouting for the August deer hunt is done in June and July, which is excruciatingly hot in Arizona. Um, my wife and my son are typically not out running around with me when I'm checking cameras and doing things like that when it's, you know, 100 plus degrees out in the desert. Um, my wife will sit in a blind, whether it's 100 degrees out or 35 degrees out. She loves doing that. But typically the August hunts are for me because when they start, uh, my son's usually going into school until my wife, you know, getting him to school and stuff like that. So most of my time, for the archery hunt, a lot of it for me where it's my focus is in August. And, you know, the water source is obviously the key that time of year. I mean, where you find water is where you're going to find deer in Arizona. Typically when that hunt starts, the monsoons have started to come in. But our monsoons are can be very sporadic to where you could have an area that just gets hammered with rain and then two miles north of that area, they haven't got a drop. So I focus on obviously water sources and trail cameras and glassing around water um, on those August and September hunts. That's, that's my main focus. I typically focus in the desert. Uh, you can also hunt the pines, and that gives you the opportunity to shoot a turkey in some of those units. And also most of those units have some sort of a bear hunt open during that early season deer hunt. The December hunts, for me, usually my year is, been pretty busy and so I get out um, the rut is just kind of starting to get going in uh, in early December depending on the weather but truly it never really seems to get going in Arizona until mid to late January but the nice thing about December is the season's over in two weeks so if you find a decent buck and you want to shoot it um, you can knowing that you're going to have another tag in two weeks and you can start hunting again for maybe the bigger buck that slipped away or the bigger buck that wasn't in the best position to shoot. So on that December hunt, let's say you didn't kill one in August, you didn't have a rifle deer tag, and now you've got two weeks in December, you're not necessarily quote-unquote trophy hunting. I've seen you in past where it's more like, you know, if you get a good opportunity, you're probably just going to take it because you've got a season that starts again January 1st. You get to start all over again. It's almost, in essence, like a bonus buck, right? Yeah, I mean, that's me to a T this year. I mean, I will, if I get out on a decent buck this year, I'm going to let it fly um, just because I'll have limited time in December because of other obligations. And I haven't killed a deer this year, and if I get out there and get a chance and a decent buck, I'm going to put a buck on it and see what happens. Let's talk a little bit. You said that you, in, let's back up to in August, you like to hunt the desert. 
um, whereas you know you can also hunt up in the pine units and what have you. How much of that is just close proximity, you know, to the Phoenix area, and it happens to be a desert, um, as opposed to that's actually where you want to hunt. Uh, I mean, proximity is everything, probably, and the fact that that's what I've grown up hunting is the pine. Or, I'm sorry, the desert. Uh, in the summertime, you know, when you're scouting in J June and July, the days are it, the days are long. So I mean, it gets light early, so you're leaving two two thirty in the morning to get into places before the sun comes up. Because once the sun comes up, it's brutally hot, and so you know, proximity me is important just because I can get out more and I can check things more often and I mean I've had pretty good success killing some pretty good deer you know within an hour of my house yeah for sure I'm looking at the um, regulations right now and just speaking specifically about the December hunt one thing that's interesting and you can correct me on this like I haven't paid a huge amount of attention to it because I'm usually getting ready for these Sonora Mexico hunts but like uh, unit one, two, three B, four A, four B, five A, five B, six B, seven, eight. Um, they don't even have a December archery hunt where I believe they used to, um, and, and and a bunch of those units actually don't even have a January season. Um, but then you get down into you know, more of the southern Arizona stuff, you know, say the 30As, 30Bs, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36s, they have not only a uh, December but a January season as well. Um, has that always been the case? I don't remember Unit 7 and 8 being closed in December. Maybe I'm just an idiot, but um, is, is that something new, Brian, or... or you, you know anything about that? Uh, some of those units they've changed. Um, for example, you know, 21 used to be open in December, and yeah. the last two years it's been closed. Uh, 23 was closed for the last three years in December, and this year it's opened back up again. So they do try to kind of fluctuate that. I've been told that 21's never going to go back to having a December hunt. And it's not necessarily a bad thing because the unit's close to Phoenix. You know, guys yeah, going there with the mentality. Yeah, and I mean, they're going in there with the mentality of knowing they're going to get a tag in two weeks. So they, they're going to shoot deer that they may not shoot in January. So, I mean, for those guys who get the late rifle tags in 21, it's a great deal because you don't have to deal with everybody else out in the field. You only have a few rifle hunters out there and you basically have the whole place to yourself. Yeah. Uh, I don't um, know. Go ahead. I don't know a whole lot about seven and eight. I haven't hunted them myself. Um, seven has been a draw in the past, and they've kind of bounced around because seven's right there in Flagstaff. So you know, pretty much everyone in Flag can hunt those units in seven. But I, I I don't know enough about seven and eight to really speak about it myself. You've got like a, tw a twenty. Uh, see, twenty A is not open in December. Seventeen A is not open. Sixteen A is not open. Um, you know, 29 is, uh, looks like it's not open. Um, you know, the one that kind of surprised me was 20A. I wonder what the reason is not having a December tag on that. Yeah, I hunt 20A for Havelina, and I don't know 
what the logic is behind that. I, I'm sure at some point it had a December tag, but I've since I've been hunting it, it hasn't had a December tag. Um, but 20C, which is the unit right next to it, does have December hunts. So I'm not sure exactly what their reasoning is for doing those things on some of those hunts. I think that for like 21 and 7, it's probably associated with the fact that the close proximity to, to, uh, to town. And 28 could be the same thing because 28 is really close to, uh, it's basically all the south side of Prescott. A bunch of that country yeah. is there. So that could be Another part one of the that reason. surprised me is, 42 is not open in December, which, which kind of surprised me. Um, Brian, let's talk about during these over-the-counter uh, seasons, whether it be December or January, one of the things that people from out of state that are listening to the podcast need to understand, and I've tried to t say it before, is one of the beauties of that is you can actually hunt mule deer or coos in most all of the units with, say, the exception of 34A, where it's antlered white, antlered whitetail only, um, in December, those units are any antler deer. Talk a little bit about some of the units where, you know, you have a chance to glass up a muley or a coos in the same, you know, field of view of the binocular, and um, it's pretty neat to be able to have kind of a smorgasbord, if you will, of opportunity. Yeah, I mean, Arizona, for a non-resident, provides some incredible opportunities in December and January because... If, depending on what your schedule is, I mean, you could come down here and get, if you apply for a javelina tag or grab a leftover tag, especially in the southern units, I'm looking at the list of leftover tags right now, and units like 36A, B, and C, and 34A, 34B, and 33, all the units basically around Tucson, which are all great whitetail and mule deer units, have leftover javelina tags that coincide with that January deer hunt. So it's kind of a bonus hunt for a non-resident. Um, because you can come down here and you can chase mule deer or coos deer, depending on what what type of country you're looking in or, you know, what animal you glass up. And you get the bonus of getting to shoot a javelina, which are, in my opinion, made for bow hunting. I mean, they're just fun animals to get to stock with a group of people. And, and they provide just a fun hunt where you can be pretty successful. And, you know, it, it's just a great experience for a minimal amount of money. For a non-resident to come down here and get to chase rutting deer because I mean our deer in January are rutting hard uh, typically middle of the late part of the year is when they really seem to, middle of the late part of January is when they really seem to get get going but I mean you could plan a hunt you know a couple days after Christmas and come down and hunt deer and shoot a smaller deer and then you get to hunt a bigger deer in January 1st and then you can also shoot a pig I mean it's just kind of a really neat experience I know some people have reached out to me from your podcast before asking about, you know, recommendations and places to put in for. I mean, Arizona's got a lot of public land, so you really don't have a ton of private land issues. So, I mean, you basically can get on a map and look at National Forest and come down and figure out, you know what, I'm going to go hunt here. And, I mean, we set up those southern desert units where the pigs are at and the, you know, mule deer and white tails are at. You can basically cover country in a truck and get up on high points just off the road and glass and i mean you're going to turn some deer up and you're going to turn some pigs up eventually so you can you you may not have to have a honey hole to go to i mean we have a lot of game available to find and get to go hunt yeah and i think you know the other thing to add in there is quail season is pretty much open throughout all those units as well and i mean during the middle of the day you can go shoot a, a you know a limit of quail and you know really between you know, coos deer, mule deer, javelina, and quail, I mean, for a non-resident, 
um, you can come down and just have a grand old time. Uh, you know, the, the, I'm looking at the price of the tag. You're looking at uh, let's see, 315 bucks. Um, so pretty inexpensive. Uh, and you know, let's see, the javelina is 115 bucks. So I mean, and, and I believe with your hunting license, you can shoot all the quail you want. Um, you know, obviously up up to your limit. But um, that's a pretty good opportunity for guys that have you know horrible weather in January. You know, maybe you know in the Midwest or, or or where have you back east where they could come out here and enjoy the sunshine. But I think the thing that you know you said that I just want to be clear is like you can come down in January and hunt the deer in the peak of the rut. Like it really anybody could come down and get on a high point in the peak of the rut and glass up deer and have opportunities. And it's probably your best chance to see deer, period, any month is, you know, mid-January. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, the deer activity is going to be off the charts. I mean, this year I expect there probably to be quite a few deer killed next weekend and leading up to the January hunts because we haven't had any moisture. So, I mean, these, deers are still, these deer are still going to be pretty focused around water and they're going to have to be hitting water because we just haven't had the moisture. Yeah, so, I mean, real, dr real droughty. Uh, talk about rutting as far as um, when do the mule deer rut typically, and I know, you know, we've got deserts, we've got, you know, mountain areas to talk about, but talk about, you know, historically mule deer rutting, does it coincide with the coos, or um, I kind of know the answer, I think, but I'm just curious your opinion for guys that are thinking, man, I want to chase muleys, when is the best time? And then, hey, I want to really get after the coos during the rut. When would, when would you say is the best time for them? I mean, my experiences with both mule deer and whitetail during the rut is basically in the southern half of the state. So basically from Prescott South is where I've spent most of my time. And those deer are running pretty similar times in my opinion. You're going to get bucks rutting a little bit in December and then it really gets going in January. As well as some of the northern stuff, you know, Unit 10, 18A, 18B, those bucks might might get turned on a little earlier in December. Uh, it definitely seems that the farther north you go, the earlier they'll start to rut. I mean, we were hunting the Strip and those bucks were rutting uh, November 15th and November 13th. They were, they were starting to get going, but they still really kick it off mid to late November is when it all seems to really get going. I don't I think would say, too, the mule deer, if, if anything, I think the mule deer across the deserts, the mule deer are going to rut just a little bit sooner than the coos deer. That's been my experience. Um, I don't think there's a huge difference. I think, you know, guys ask me all the time, if you're going to come down and you only have a week in January, when would you pick? I usually say, well, for one, what's the moon doing? That, that kind of goes into my equation. Number two, you know, uh, I would prefer to hunt them when they're really, really, you know, actively chasing. So, you know, I would say northern kind of Prescott, you know, central central Arizona units, you know, I would say any time from Christmas to, say, 10th of January. And then I would say when you start getting in the deserts from, say, Phoenix, just above Phoenix, down to southern Arizona, I would say, you know, from that January, you know, 5th, 
maybe 10th to, you know, maybe the 20th, 25th. Curious your thoughts on, you know, definitely when you move south, don't you think uh, more towards Tucson, it gets a little bit later on prime rut? Yeah, I mean, I think if I was going to come down and hunt Arizona, it would be the second week of January is probably when I would come down to get a little bit of everything going on um, pretty hot and heavy. And I would, you know, obviously that concerns with the moon and stuff like that. I mean, if the second week of January had a full moon, then I would probably either come the first week or the third week of January type deal. Um, but I, I mean, I think you're still, you're going to see rutting activity in January. You're going to see rutting activity. It doesn't matter. I mean, you will see it at some point in time or another. Uh, December, it just depends on what's going on with the weather. But I, I would agree that the mule deer probably rut a little bit earlier than the whitetail. But uh, it just seems that January is kind of the month that everybody, all the deer are getting going pretty good. Let's talk about some stocking tips for people to be successful that are coming down. Um, let's talk kind of specifically about desert bucks. Um, you know, what tips do you have? You've been real successful on on all of those hunts, you know, as far as stocking, well, finding deer and stocking deer and making a play on deer, what kind of tips do you have for them? I mean, finding deer, it's all about glassing. Basically, let your eyes do the walk-in, find the deer. They're going to be on their feet. Um, find them, and it's in an ideal situation, if you can bed them down and then get yourself moving in on them, whether stationary and bedded down, that's probably the ideal situation. If you can get in front of them, that can be helpful. The one issue that's posed with, you know, hunting deer in the rut is you got more deer around. I mean, you're going to have a mule deer. Bucks can have, you know, three to four does, or they could have 15 does, and it obviously makes it more difficult to get in on them. Um, the bucks are definitely more tolerant of mistakes made by hunters, but the does are not. So. If you make a mistake and the buck catches you a little bit, he may not really care because the doe is there. Um, but if the doe cares and she moves out, then the buck's going to follow. Um, stalking techniques, you know, it's it's if you see a buck and he's by himself and his nose is to the ground and he's moving, there's no point in stalking that deer until he slows down because he is looking for a hot doe and he is going to go until he finds a hot doe. And you're probably not going to catch him. If you get in front of him, if you can get in front of him, great. But if it's a lone buck and his nose is to the ground and he's, you know, either following a hot doe or looking for a hot doe, you probably need to wait till he settles down to, to make a move on him because they will they will cover some country and you're not going to catch them. Uh, January gives you the opportunity to use uh, calls a little bit in the in the desert. Arizona's not real known for it, but you can rattle bucks in um, in January and you can grunt some bucks in in January. And I've known plenty of people to have success with it. I've never really taken to it, but it's definitely something that does work. I know the mule deer tend to come to that rattling, and you can grunt some whitetail bucks in in that thicker type country. Um, you just got to be able to get an arrow off, you know, because it's tough. They're coming in looking for you, making that noise. But I, I would say the biggest issue you have is just more eyes on that January hunt and the fact that. If the deer are chasing or they're looking for a hot doe, they're just not very stationary, which makes it hard to move on them. Brian, I, you know, you've been extremely successful. You're also one of the best archery shots that I know, so that 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 has played well for you. Um, but you talk about kind of getting in front of them, and 
you know, that's a tactic we use on elk a lot, but, you know, they walk with the wind in their nose and they constantly know where that wind is and, you know, they have that breeze blowing in their face. Um, how much do you, you know, glass a deer and kind of get a path of progress and try and get in front of them and just kind of wait because the gravel, because the terrain is so loud, are there times when you just kind of get in position and hope that they work towards you rather than you keep bumping and getting in and getting in and then boom, they, they see you and bump out? I mean, how well does the strategy of just kind of getting in their path of progress and letting it happen? I mean, just like anything, it can work. I'm probably more on the the more passive side when I come to hunting, uh, comes to hunting deer, you know, I, once I get into that bubble of 70, 75 yards, 80 yards, I kind of let the deer dictate what happens next because on what, especially on whitetails or deer where there's multiple deer there, once you get into that bubble, it's really hard to move and close that gap without getting busted. And sometimes maybe I should have been more aggressive and other times, you know, when I was aggressive, I got burned on it, but, in today's world with your western bow hunter most of us are going to take a 70 yard shot at an animal standing still um giving you the opportunity and so i mean once i feel like i'm in my effective range i kind of just let the animal dictate kind of how it goes hope that he gets up and kind of gives me that shot or we'll move a little closer or move around the bush um but i have friends that are on the more aggressive side and they've also been very successful because those bucks are a lot more tolerant that time of year because you know they're focused on breeding a doe and so they'll let you get away with a lot more than they would have in the earlier seasons i got a question on my instagram from uh a hunter out there says um my my we had been talking a little bit uh asking about uh not having success on archery deer hunts uh last year was the first your, um, it's actually coming from a, a lady hunter says, um, my two biggest issues last year, which was my first time bow hunting were getting close and not busting them and then deciding whether to move in or watch them. It seemed like every time I wanted to wait, they would just stay put out, uh, out, it, let's see, in, uh, stay put in the general area. And then every time I wanted to move in on them, they'd head out of the canyon or over a hill. It was darned if I do, darned if I don't. Can you relate to that situation, Brian, and what advice would you give them? Well, I mean, that's the million-dollar question. I mean, if we had the answer, if we could figure out when to move and when to stay, stay put, we'd be uh, – hunting would be easier, but – you know, it's just, you got to go with your gut. I feel like if I can get myself within my effective bow range, 70 to 80 yards, and even if maybe 100 yards, but I, I read the terrain, I read the situation as, you know what, I'm not likely to get any closer, then I'll just stay put and, and you know, hope the deer helps me out by moving closer to me. Um, or, you know, the doe moves my direction so the buck follows. Sometimes that doesn't work because the wind swirls. But you kind of just have to read the situation you got. I mean, if you've got a lone buck at 80 yards by himself bedded under a tree looking away, then you probably need to close that distance to your effective range, whether it be 50, 40, 60 yards, whatever. But if you've got a buck with 12 does and you're at 80 yards and you've got does, you know, at 
40 yards, you probably need to stay put because that buck's going to get up and hopefully check some of those does and get a little closer to you. And there's not a very good uh, likelihood that you're going to be able to close the distance onto that buck without getting busted. So I think you yeah. just have to read what you're given and try to make the best decision possible with, you know, what, you, what you've been given. Yeah, I think that's good advice. One thing I recommended to her as well is I'm a fan of those sneak tech, um, you know, boot, uh, things that slip over your boots that, you know, they've got about an inch and a half worth of foam, and, and um, they've been incredible for me on, on some of these elk hunts. And I haven't used them specifically for archery deer hunting, but I know that it's so loud out there in that crunchy granite in, in the desert that any, anything that you can put on your feet to quiet down your noise, because uh, most of the time those deer can pick you out. You know, when you get to that 100-yard mark, anything inside that, they can hear you. And so um, do you ever use things on your feet, as, you know, bear, the old bear's feet or Carlton's super stalkers or whatever or the sneak tech? Do you use any of that? Yeah, I mean, I typically will carry uh, an extra super thick, large set of socks in my bag, and I'm not opposed to taking it off, taking my boots off and going in, especially on deer. Um, there is a couple of, you know, the sneak tech ones are out there. There's another one called, I think, like a silent stalkers, which are kind of like a a calf height, like moccasin style slipper that I believe you put on over your socks and you take your boots off, but I'm not 100% sure on those. I, I'm interested in trying those. I'll probably order a pair and try those this year, but you definitely got to have something to put on your feet. Uh, the reality of it is, though, if it's a dead calm day and it's completely silent, once you get in that bubble, it's really hard to be totally quiet because it doesn't take much. And so you just, you got to, you got to read the situation. If you're given you know, a 10-mile-an-hour wind and you're good, then you can probably close the distance further. But uh, you try and use anything you can to, to help you out. I have not specifically killed a deer wearing any type of, you know, sneak tech on my feet, but I have done it, you know, with just always carrying an extra large, thick set of so socks in my pack and throwing those on. That's good stuff. Um, talk about when you actually, the deer that you've shot, I know you've had some deer drop down on you and, and um, almost jump the string. Uh, do you find that when you're sitting water in August or, you know, sitting water in general, that that's more likely to happen uh, than when you're out stalking them and the deer that you've shot, you know, spot and stalk situation, do you see them jumping the string or ducking down near as much? I mean, deer are definitely more on edge when they come to water. There's no doubt about it. Uh, if you've ever had a camera or, or sat water and sat salt that's off the water, deer will come into water and super skittish. And then if they come into a salt lick that's maybe 100 yards from the water, they seem to just be a lot more relaxed. So, yes, I've had one of the biggest bucks I ever had a chance at, you know, ducked an arrow on me um, at a water hole at 37 yards, and I aimed low. But they'll, I mean, you almost, you have to aim on a white tail, you got to aim under the body if you think that deer's skittish and he's going to jump the string on you. On a mule deer, it's a bigger target. They're, they have less of a tendency to jump the string on you than a white tail does, but, I mean, they still can do it. I mean, we've all seen elk do it and everything like that, too. So, 
Uh, you definitely have to just kind of read the animal. If the animal has no idea you're there and he's chasing a doe, then he's probably not likely to duck as much as if he's on alert and he's kind of caught some movement and he's looking your direction. Brian, I wanted to take a second here to thank the sponsors of the podcast, uh, Go Hunt Insider. Uh, Go Hunt Insider is an awesome tool that uh, Western hunters can use to check out and research all the different units in different states on harvest and uh, harvest statistics and draw odds. And if they use the J. Scott promo code, they're going to get a $50 uh, Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card. All they got to do is go to gohunt.com forward slash J. Scott and follow the prompts. Uh, also, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting, uh, Brian, I notice you wear a lot of Kuyu gear, and uh, over, the, over the last bunch of years, you've been wearing Kuyu, and I know you like it, as well as Darn, I have uh, found to really like Kuyu Ultralight uh, Hunting gear. I want to thank them for their sponsorship. Uh, Phonescope.com, if you use the J. Scott 16 promo code, you're going to get a 10% off uh, any of the Phonescope products, and then the Outdoorsman's here in, in Phoenix, in Arizona, uh, the Optics Authority, if you use the J. Scott promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount there. I want to thank those sponsors. They've um, been with me a long time, and I, I hear from them and hear from you guys how you have a good relationship, uh, and uh, I really appreciate their support, and I appreciate the listener support. Uh, Brian, I want to thank you for... Um, sharing with us on your hunts and congratulate you and Nicole on, and Jaron on the success you've had this fall and um, can't wait to see. I know you're going to go out and shoot a buck in December. You, you tend to always be able to fill a tag when you've got one to fill. Um, with that being said, how aggressive are you going to get on deer in January or have you uh, gotten to where you just really like that August so much that it's got to be a special buck once your January tag, when your 18 tag rolls around. January is more of a target of opportunity for me on a deer because I get out with my son and my wife chasing javelina and my dad, and so if I find a good buck in January, then I'll go after him, but it's not, my focus is not deer. It's going out and having fun chasing javelina with the family, so it's more of just an opportunity if the opportunity presents itself, then I'll capitalize on it. If it doesn't, then uh, I'll look to the August hunt. Nice. Well, uh, really appreciate you sharing a bunch of tips with us and covering this over-the-counter gear. I know it's been a topic that people have wanted to hear about, and I thought you were a perfect person to cover it with as much success as you've had with it. And, um, yeah, I, I'm excited to um, see what this new coach at ASU does. Uh, you know, I was kind of disappointed. I kind of liked Todd Graham, to be honest with you. And, you know, out of the last six years, to be able to beat the U of A four times, um, you know, for me alone, I'd say keep the coach just for that. But um, should be interesting. I don't know how much you know about this new coach, but um, he's had a lot of success and such and, you know, former NFL coach. So it should be interesting for sure and always makes for – you know, a fun rivalry for sure. Oh, yeah. We'll never uh, – we'll always have good rivalries for sure, so it'll be a good time. I have to say you're a lot more mild-mannered on the podcast when we're talking ASU uh, U of A than you are in person. Usually I'm, I'm uh, getting verbally abused when we bring up the subject. Yeah, it, that uh, tends to happen <laughs> when your team gets beat, so <laughs> – Wait till next time. 
Right on, buddy. Well, thanks uh, so much. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for sharing with us. And um, I always appreciate having you on and, and getting that good insight from uh, someone with a lot of experience. Well, I appreciate being on, and uh, have a good one, Jay, and I'll uh, talk to you later. Okay, buddy. God bless. Take care. All right, bye.